It's a joy to be coming back to Matthew again. I absolutely loved the months that we spent in Matthew chapter 1 to 7, two years ago. Two years ago already. Isn't that, isn't that something? This past May, I got to take a, a grad class on Matthew, uh, taught by a godly professor who's been teaching on this book regularly for 33 years. And it was an incredibly rich week of learning that once again just got me really excited about this book. Uh, it just deepened my appreciation for it. And it was, it worked out really well because I knew that I was going to be preaching on, on it and a number of my class assignments overlapped with, with preparation for the sermon series. And so I feel a little extra prepared. Although you can be the judge of whether that actually shows up or not. But you might wonder, why are we only spending nine weeks in Matthew? You got a little sermon outline, sermon series outline in your bulletin, that little green piece of paper. And, and broadly speaking, the book of Matthew has a beginning and an ending, and in between there's five major sections. Each of these sections comes in two parts. First, you have a record of Jesus' activities, and then second, you have an, a, an extended section of his teaching. And so you've, that, that's sort of the, the, the five main pieces that, that Matthew's built on. These two parts that have what Jesus did and a big section of what Jesus taught. And then this section of what Jesus taught finishes up with a phrase. And Matthew uses uh, uh, the, almost the exact same words five times to cap off these five sections. We've seen two of them already. Uh, well, no, we've only seen one. We will see the second. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew seven twenty-eight, and when Jesus finished these sayings, and then we're going to see at the end of this series, uh, Matthew eleven one, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples. Each of these five sections ends with when Jesus had finished and then something about his sayings. And that's one of Matthew's clues that this part of the book is done and we move on from there. And, uh, and so there's three more of these similar phrases in chapter 13 and then the beginning of chapter 19 and 26. So uh, one of the things that, that you're going to see here is that Matthew is, is a fairly structured book. And, you, uh, and, and the fact that it breaks up into these sections works really well for us because you know that we have a, a, a pattern here that we've been doing for the past uh, we're, we've just finished, a, a, I think, a four-year cycle, or we just finished a two-year cycle, where we are, um, I'm, I'm, I get lost because I'm planning ahead on this stuff, but in a two-year cycle, we preach roughly equally from all the six major parts of Scripture. So we're getting a balanced diet from all of the Bible every two years. And, and the way that we do this is we break up the big books into smaller sections. And so... Uh, some of the times those sections will be bigger, like Matthew 1 to 7. Some of the times they'll be shorter, like Matthew 8 to 10. But it actually balances out quite well over the course of, of the cycle. So at the end of next year, we'll have spent equal time roughly, and actually pretty, pretty spot on equal time in all the six portions of Scripture over the four-year period. So Matthew is a very structured book. And this structure shows up in these five sections, but it even goes beyond that. Matthew has multiple levels of structure that weave in and out of these five main sections. There's overlapping structures. Back in Matthew 4.23, which was kind of in the, in the middle of that, of that first section, we read these words. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So Jesus is going around teaching, proclaiming, healing. Uh, 
And then at the end of chapter 9, we read almost the exact same words. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. So this is a literary device where an author says something and then has a bunch of material and then says that exact same thing again. It's called an inclusio, which is a fancy word that we could swap it out for bookends. Okay, you got bookends. He says something, material, and he says something. And basically, what he says at the ends is a way of summing up what comes in between. Okay, so Matthew 4.23, and at the end of chapter 9.35, it says Jesus went around teaching and healing. So what do you think we find in between those two, ver- those two verses and the chapters in between? We get a record of Jesus teaching and healing. The teaching is the Sermon on the Mount, and the healing is these nine miracles in Matthew's, Matthew chapter 8 to 9 that we look at in this series. So you see, we're talking about overlapping structures. You've got these five pieces, but then you've also got this section of teaching and healing that's a pretty defined unit that spreads across two of these five sections. And it's really neat to see these things and to see how deliberately Matthew composed his gospel. And so we are going to be considering in this section what kind of comes after the Sermon on the Mount. That was his teaching. Here's the healing. Here's what we need to understand, though. There's a connection between teaching and healing. It's not just like Jesus did this and also he did this. The the, the teaching and the healing of Jesus, according to Matthew, are both ways that Jesus displayed his authority. So you remember how his teaching displayed his authority. What what did the crowd say at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew 7, 28 to 29. Well, actually, they don't say anything. How do they respond? It says, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Now, Jesus wasn't just teaching with an authoritative sounding voice. Anyone can do that. Anyone can make themselves sound authoritative. No, Jesus was teaching as one who himself had authority. And that com- we saw that come out in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I tell you. Right? Jesus himself had authority. And his teaching was a display of his authority. Jesus' miracles also display his authority. They show that it's right. He himself does have authority. He's not putting this on. He doesn't just teach with authority. He also goes out and tells demons where to go, and they listen. He tells sickness to leave, and it listens. He tells seas to stop, and they stop. He has authority. And so both the teaching and these, this section of miracles displays the authority of Jesus for us. Then when we get to chapter 10, we see Jesus giving his authority, giving authority, we should say, to his 12 disciples, and then sending them out to go do the same thing. So we've got this Jesus teaching, healing, and then chapter 10, he sends his 12 disciples out to teach and to heal. And in chapter 10, it's him preparing them for this mission. So that's why we're calling this series the spread of the kingdom. Because in the healing ministry of Jesus, and in the sending out of the 12, those are the two big parts of this series, we see the good news of the kingdom of God spreading to more and more people. 
Today we're going to start by considering the first set of three miracles. Now, why three miracles? Well, I told you Matthew is a very structured book. Here's one more. Chapter 8 to 9 has nine miracles. Matthew groups them together in groups of three. And in between the two groups of three, he has a, a short section that shows how people were responding to Jesus. So three groups of three with a section in between. And, and so that's just the pattern we're following in this first sermon here. We're looking at the first group of three miracles. So, without further ado, let's consider that. And this first miracle is the healing of the leper. Chapter 8, verse 1 tells us that when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. Now, right there, we just need to pause and notice something that if, if you were a Jewish reader of Matthew, and Matthew clearly wrote his gospel with, with Jewish readers, people who knew the Old Testament scriptures in mind, the language of coming down from the mountain was very significant, just like the language in chapter 5 of going up on the mountain. So what's that sound like? Well, it sounds like Moses, and it's very deliberate. It's, a, it's an echo of Exodus 19 and Exodus 34, and it's a subtle way that Matthew portrays Jesus as the new Moses. Jesus, Moses went up onto the mountain and received the law from God. Jesus went up on the mountain and from his own mouth taught the people how to understand the law and what it means to obey the law in this new era of fulfillment that Jesus has brought. So you're going to see this in our passage today. You've got this big structure of three miracles, but in between there's so many nuggets of pure gold just waiting to be seen. Verse 2, and behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him. Pay attention to that word behold. It's one of those Bible words that we sometimes think people just talk that way. Behold, I'm going to get a coffee. No. Behold means look. Matthew wants us to notice this. Look at this. Check this out. A leper coming and kneeling before him. Lepers had a contagious skin disease. We don't know if it was exactly leprosy. The word could refer to a number of different skin diseases. But they were contagious. And if you had leprosy, you had to isolate. It was like never-ending COVID lockdown. Right? We understand a little bit of what it means to isolate. We can identify with this a little bit. But it never ended. And so they had to live off by themselves, cut off from the community, cut off from the temple... They couldn't worship God. They couldn't bring sacrifices for their sins. They lived a, a life of painful isolation. People were forbidden from touching them, and they stayed away from crowds because they didn't want anyone to touch them. And so it's not hard to imagine the crowds just parting like the Red Sea as this leper shows up in the middle of, these, of this group of people coming to Jesus. I mean, can you imagine? It's not hard to imagine the crowd hushing going silent, thinking, what is this guy doing here? And what is Jesus going to say to him? But before we get there, we should notice what this leper does. He comes to Jesus, and he kneels before him. Verse 2, knelt before him. This is very interesting. In Matthew's gospel, the last time we saw people kneeling before Jesus, it was the Magi at his birth. And, and in Matthew, this word for kneel points to worship. It points to more than just a, a posture. It points to them worshiping him. 
and, and it makes us ask some questions. Because remember, at this point in Matthew's gospel, if you were just a part of the people in Matthew's gospel, who knows who Jesus is? People don't yet. There's just clues, hints. It hasn't, Peter hasn't said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so as we see this leper in a position of worship before Jesus, and Jesus doesn't say, stop that, this is a big clue to who Jesus is. Now listen to what the leper says. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. This is such a good example for us to learn from of, of prayer. He doesn't demand. He doesn't complain. Why'd you give me leprosy? He doesn't do that. Technically, he doesn't even ask. He just says a statement of fact, Lord, if you're willing, you could make me clean. You can make me clean. Jesus had done many miracles by this point, so apparently this leper had had heard about who Jesus was and what he was capable of, and he decided that this was his only hope, was Jesus, and he knows Jesus can heal him. And he just tells him that. Jesus, I believe. And so now comes the big moment. How is Jesus going to respond? Is Jesus going to say, what are you doing here? You could, you could get these people sick. What's your problem? Is Jesus going to pull back in disgust? Before even saying anything, we should see what Jesus does. Verse 3, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. How many years had it been since this, since this guy had been touched by another person? No one was allowed to touch him and no one wanted to touch him. It was gross. Leprosy was nasty. But Jesus touches him. What were the crowds thinking? What's he doing? He's going to get leprosy. <laughs> and then Jesus speaks these words. I will be clean. I love this. In, in, in the Greek language, the original language in the New Testament here, it's just two words. I will is one word. Be clean is another word. It's just it. No elaborate ritual. Just two words. Verse 3, and immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Instead of this man's leprosy transferring to Jesus... Jesus' touch makes him clean. Things normally work the other way. If you're dirty and I'm clean and I touch you, I'm dirty. Right? That's, that's how it works with people. But with Jesus, if you're dirty and he touches you, you get clean. And that's what happens to this man. And then Jesus gives him some instructions. Verse 4, see that you say nothing to anyone. And we know from the way that, that Mark records this, Jesus had these huge crowds following him, and they were actually getting in the way of him being able to minister. So he, he didn't want more thrill seekers. He didn't just want to be famous. So he tells the man to keep it quiet. And we know from Mark's account that he didn't. And then he t- says, go show yourself to the priest. That was what the law of Moses said. And so he tells this man, obey the law of Moses and go show yourself to the priest. And that's going to be a witness that Jesus actually did heal this person and made him clean and made him whole. And so that's the first of these three miracles that 
we see in our section. Verse 5 brings us to the second of the three miracles, which is the healing and the restoration of the centurion servant. So Jesus enters Capernaum. We read in verse 5 when he'd entered Capernaum. Capernaum was a major center in Galilee, and there was a, a Roman outpost there. So there would have been a centurion, maybe more than one centurion. Centurion was a, an officer soldier, and he was in charge of a of hundred soldiers where the name comes from. I think century, centurion. Um, often it could only be 60 to 80 that he was over. And this centurion comes to Jesus with a request. Except it's not exactly a request. Once again, like the leper, he just makes a statement. He says, verse 6, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. So he just tells this to Jesus. And he assumes that Jesus isn't going to say, oh, that's interesting, and keep going, right? He knows something about Jesus. He knows he just has to tell him. That's going to be enough. And he's right, because verse 7, and he, Jesus, said to him, I will come and heal him. Now, it's interesting. Greek doesn't have question marks, and so we have to kind of look at the context to see if it's a question. This very well could be a question. That's how the NIV translates it. Shall I come and heal him? Jesus says, is that what you like? He also could just be making a statement. I'll, I'll come. I'll heal him. And here is the really remarkable part in this story, is the centurion's response. He doesn't say, yes, please. Here's what he says. Verse 8, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. He is not good enough for Jesus to come into his house. But he asks Jesus to heal anyways. Why? Because he knows, he knows that Jesus doesn't have to come into his house to heal his servant, that he can just say something and it will happen. Well, how does he know that? Okay, well, think about this. Who else can make things happen with words? God, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God said, let there be light. There was light. God does things with words. And the centurion, this Gentile centurion, just think, this is relatively early in the gospel. We haven't had a lot of material, a lot of interaction with Jesus. But this Gentile centurion knows that Jesus is operating in the power of God and that he can do things with words. And he shows this when he says in verse 9, he says, For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now this centurion was under the authority of Rome. He was an authorized agent of Rome. And as an authorized agent of Rome, all he needed to do was speak the word, and his soldiers answered, because this centurion operated with the authority of God. Sorry, of Rome. And he understands that just like his relationship with Rome, he understands that's a, a, a comparison to Jesus' relationship with God. That we should say the Father, although this man probably didn't have a fully developed Trinitarian theology, but he knew Jesus operates as an authorized agent of the power of God, just like I operate under the power of Rome. So if, Jesus, if God can do things with words, Jesus can do things with words. Now, isn't, isn't this amazing? I just want you to think about this, that at this early state, 
This Gentile had figured things out about Jesus that Jesus' own countrymen would never figure out. They never figured out. They, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, when did they catch on that Jesus was from God? Never. And yet this Gentile, right here back at the beginning, has figured out, well, Jesus must be from God or else he couldn't do what he's doing. So don't even come to my house, Jesus. Just say the word. You're from God. You can do this. Isn't that amazing? And, and that's, you know how we know it's amazing? is because Jesus marvels. Much of the time, the crowds marvel, but Jesus marvels in verse 10. Just imagine him standing there with his mouth open. What does it look like? I would sort of love to see Jesus marveling. And Jesus marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Right? So the people of Israel who have been prepared with centuries of the Bible, they didn't get it. But this Gentile guy, he got it. He's, the, he's one of the bad guys to boot. I mean, Rome, they're occupying forces. And he got it. This is amazing, but it gets even more amazing because in verse 10, Jesus, sorry, verse 11 to 12, Jesus helps us see that this role reversal is a pointer to a much bigger shakeup that's coming among the people of God. And Jesus says this, I tell you, many will come from the East and the West. In other words, Gentiles like this guy, many will come from the East and the West and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer, the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, so the prophets had spoken about a day in the age to come where there'd be a great banqueting feast celebrating God's end times final salvation. And Jesus is saying that Gentiles like this guy are going to get to be part of that feast, while the sons of the kingdom, which refers to the natural born people of Israel, many of them are going to be cast out into punishment and death. In other words, it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. What matters is whether or not you have faith in God and God's Messiah. Right? John the Baptist taught the same thing back in chapter 3. Remember, he said to the Pharisees and Sadducees, he said, called them sons of snakes, brood of vipers. In other words, you're the devil's kids. You're the offspring of the serpent that Genesis 3 talked about. And then he said, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. In other words, don't think, oh, we're part of the children of Abraham. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So John the Baptist said it, Jesus said it. Just because you're a part of the people of Israel doesn't mean that you're going to get to be a part of that end time celebration. In other words, doesn't mean that you're going to be saved. Doesn't mean that you're going to be a part of the people of God. And the rest of the New Testament unpacks this idea in detail. And on your study guide this week, which is in your bulletin, we go into detail in some of those scriptures. And these chapters that we point to there pick up on what Jesus is saying here is that we get to be a part of the people of God, not by being born once into an Israelite family, but by being born again by faith in Jesus, the true son of Abraham. Now, If that idea makes your head spin, think of how it would have made Jesus' listeners' head spin. I mean, they're just walking down the street, the centurion asks them a question, and all of a sudden Jesus just opens up not just a can of worms, this is like a case of worms about the very nature of the people of God. And he just says it. Jesus was not afraid to rock people's worlds. But he hasn't forgotten about the paralyzed servant. 
He hasn't forgotten about the request that got this whole conversation going. So after basically pointing to the centurion and saying, it's people like you that are going to be a part of the people of God at the end of time. He says, verse 13, to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed in that very moment. The centurion was right. Jesus could heal with words and he did it. Third miracle, our fourth point this morning, and the third miracle, the third account of healing has to do with Peter's mother-in-law. This may have happened just within five minutes of this other story because Peter lived in Capernaum and Jesus goes to his house and he sees his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. Now, the fact that she lived with him shows that she was probably a widow. Her, her, this is Peter's wife's mom. She'd, her husband had probably died. She'd come to live with Peter, who was taking care of her, and she had a fever. And they didn't have Tylenol or antibiotics. So a fever could point to something minor. It could point to something deadly. And so imagine their joy in verse 14 when he touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. Now, we know Jesus doesn't need to touch people to heal them, but he does often to communicate quite literally a personal touch and to show that it's coming from him. And healed, she rises and gets right back to work. And so does Jesus. Because his work isn't over. Verse 16, that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. Jesus has authority over not just leprosy, paralysis, fevers, but over demons themselves. And he didn't need to use these elaborate rituals. There were Jewish exorcists who would try to cast out demons and they'd have these huge rituals. Jesus just says, leave him. And they obey. And Matthew closes off this section in verse 17 by telling us this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now we've got to think about this for a couple minutes. Matthew here is quoting from Isaiah 53.4. It's one of the most profound passages in the Old Testament and it anticipates the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Matthew will echo this passage several more times in his book. Now, here's what's interesting. Most of the time, Jesus taking our illnesses and bearing our diseases is understood as speaking about him taking our sin and paying for our sin. Right? If you look in Isaiah 53, 4 in the ESV, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Our call to worship passage this morning quotes from this same verse and uses it to talk about the way that Jesus bore our sins and died to heal us from the ultimate sickness, which was our sins and our fractured relationship with God. So we've been healed of our sin because Jesus died for our sin. So why does Matthew quote this verse and use it to talk about sickness. Well, one, one answer is that the Hebrew words can kind of point in both directions. The Hebrew words in, in Isaiah 53, 4, you can translate them the way Matthew does. It's good. It's a good translation. You can do that. The second big reason is that 
from the time of the Garden of Eden onwards, there's always been a connection. There's always been a connection between sickness and sin. Why is there sickness in the world? Because of our sin. God cursed the earth with futility and with the pain of thorns and thistles and from that coming sickness in order to show us a something of the awfulness of our sin. Sickness is a signpost to the existence of sin. The things that go wrong with our bodies are a picture of the things that have gone wrong with our hearts. That's, that's a big point that we so often miss. Someone gets sick and people say, well, how could God let this happen? Well, it, it's kind of the whole point of the whole story of, of creation and fall and redemption and restoration. There's sickness in the world because we sinned. And that sickness is a picture of our sin. Now, it doesn't mean that if, if you're sick or if you have something wrong with you, it's because you specifically committed one specific sin. Okay, the book of Job just destroys that idea. Rather, what we can say is all sickness in the world is there as a picture of the sin that is in each of our hearts. So Jesus has come to deal with sin. And how, how does he tell us that? How does, he, how does he do that? Well, he starts by dealing with the effects of sin. He starts showing us who he is and his mission to deal with sin by tearing down the signpost to sin, which is sickness. And so he's also in this giving us a, a little taste of what it's going to be like in the new creation when he deals with sin once and for all. And because sin is dealt with, there will be no more sickness. Now, we need to understand something. Jesus did not heal everybody. We know this from other parts in the Gospels, like John chapter 5. He goes to the pool on the Sabbath, and he, there's disabled people everywhere, and he heals how many? One. And we know he didn't heal everybody because he left sick people for his apostles to heal. And we know they didn't heal everybody because Paul told Timothy, drink some wine for your stomach. But rather, the healing miracles of Jesus and the apostles are a little preview of what Jesus is going to do in the new creation. And they're a picture of what he did on the cross when he died to take away our sin. And so Matthew's right to quote from Isaiah 53 and say, yeah, Jesus took away sickness and it's rooted in the fact that very soon he was going to die to take away sin. Jesus is showing us who he is and what his mission is and he's given us a picture of what it's going to look like when his mission is complete. So, a triad of miracles. Three signs of power from Jesus. We've seen Jesus heal a leper, a paralyzed servant, a febrile mother-in-law who was probably a widow, and then tacked onto that crowds of sick and oppressed people at his door. And sprinkled in between, in classic Matthew fashion, we've had some profound theology dumped in our lap. Theology about the people of God, the nature of sickness, the accomplishment of Jesus on the cross. So let's, let's step back and ask, what do we see when we see this all together? Let's ask, what, what, do, what does all of this together tell us about Jesus? 
Well, obviously these, these three miracles show Jesus' authority. That he can do this. He has authority. They show us his power. They show us his identity as the servant of the Father come to deal with sin. They also show us his heart. And here's what I mean by that. Did you notice something in common about all three of these key people that Jesus healed? A leper, a centurion's servant, and a a sick widow. They're all people who are on the fringes. People who were on the margins. These were not powerful people. These were people who were on the margins. People who had been cut off from the life of the community. People who didn't have privilege or power. If Jesus were just trying to get famous, these were not the kinds of people that he would have been spending time with. Right? If Jesus were just trying to be an influencer and, and was just trying to make a name for himself, he'd be having parties with the powerful people down in Jerusalem. I mean, anyone, if you were to write up a business plan to be the Messiah, that would be like, top, hang out in Jerusalem with all the rich and powerful people, heal them, and, and then this will work. Instead, the Son of God comes to earth in the fullness of time and hangs out in backwater Galilee and spends time with these fringe people. Lepers, widows, Gentiles. And as he does that, Jesus shows us his heart. Jesus is not interested in making a name for himself in the way that we think about it. Jesus sees and cares about and loves the people on the margins, the people who don't have anything to offer him, the people who've been cut off from enjoying so much of life that other people have. And so he goes out and he touches them and he heals them. This is what Jesus is like. And Jesus here is revealing the Father. This is what the Father is like. He loves the vulnerable. So what should we learn from this? Well, we could say we should imitate Jesus. We should spend time with the people on the margins and the vulnerable. That's true. And we'll probably return to that idea We should. We shouldn't just spend time with nice-looking, clean people who look just like us. We should spend time with the quote-unquote lepers because that's what Jesus did. But I wonder if we need to step even further back from that. I wonder if we should realize that as far as our heart's concerned, we are the leper. We are the centurion servant, lying paralyzed and helpless, We are the widow with a fever who can't even do anything to ask for healing. That's us. None of us, apart from Jesus, are okay. Apart from Jesus, our hearts need desperate healing from the disease of sin. We need Jesus, and we can learn. This is humbling. We can learn from the leper, from the centurion, from the mother how we come to Jesus. We know that we're not worthy of him. We know that we're helpless. And we know that sometimes we can't even do anything but lie there and hope that he sees us. I was talking with some people a couple weeks ago about the pressure that we often feel as Christians to act like we have it all together, to just look really good on the outside. People ask us how we're doing. Oh, I'm good, doing great. And a gathering like this on Sunday morning, 
we feel like we need to come to it and all act like we're fine. Isn't it interesting that people who worship Jesus often feel pressure to act like Pharisees who had it all together on the outside? What if that's all wrong? What if you and I are just the crowd outside Peter's door? What if we're just a group of people who need Jesus together? What if that's why we gather? Because we need him, and we come together to need him together. What if that is the picture of what we should be? 1 Peter 2.24 says, By his wounds we have been healed. So hear me, I'm not encouraging us to wallow in our sin. Jesus, if you know Jesus, he has touched you. You're not the same as you used to be, but you also are not yet what you will be. In many ways, you live out your days desperate for the grace of the Messiah. Isn't that why Jesus told us to pray every day for forgiveness, every day for our daily bread? We need Jesus badly, daily. And so it would be good for us this morning to see ourselves in the leper, in the paralyzed servant, in the sick widow mother-in-law, in the crowds gathered outside the door saying, Jesus, I got nothing. If you're willing, you can make me clean. If you're willing, you can help me with whatever it is. Fill in your blank. And then we should be astonished by the fact that Jesus does offer to us freely his grace because he's gracious. So that's why we're going to end this morning by singing, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner, condemned, unclean. Watch what happens when you take this posture, this posture of needing Jesus, Watch what happens when you take that posture into the rest of your life. Watch what happens in your relationship with others. When you go into those relationships in a posture of needing Jesus. Watch how it just melts away defensiveness and pretension. Watch what happens in our church community. The more we see each other as just a group of people needing Jesus together. And amazed that he actually gives himself to us. I'm going to pray and give us a moment of quiet and then we're going to sing and marvel together at the grace of Jesus. Jesus, we need you. We're spiritual lepers apart from you. We're spiritual paralytics apart from you. We're spiritually vulnerable and sick and oppressed apart from you. So Jesus, would you help us to see ourselves as the crowd outside Peter's door just just needing you, Jesus. We need you so much. And we know that as we come to you in need, that we'll find you because you've promised yourself to those who seek you. Would you help us to be astonished by your grace? And would you help us to carry that astonishment into our weeks, into our lives? And that this sweet sense of amazement that Jesus saved us would color our relationships with each other in beautiful ways. Would you do this, O Lord? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.